everyone. All right, today um, we are 15th of January, but it's the third Sunday in January already. Okay, we're ticking through the year really quickly, um, and I, I love this time of the year. I'm the kind of guy that naturally is very reflective and introspective and nostalgic, all that sort of thing. So I love clicking over a new year and thinking about the one past and thinking about my life and how little time I have left, all that sort of stuff. It kind of excites me. Um, and it's been good. I love uh, hearing the messages this time of the year. It's usually really foundational stuff um, about our life in Christ. Um, it's just good to get regrounded at the start of the year. And I reckon God created this um, season of the year deliberately so that we might seek his Holy Spirit and that uh, he might cause us to be refreshed realigned and reignited. I think there's three things that we all need um, at the beginning of a new year. We need to be refreshed, we need to be realigned because we are prone to wander and we need to be reignited and get our passion back for serving our great King because um, all of that is needed that we might remember our life existence, the reason we live, and that is to bring glory to our great God and that we might increasingly embrace Jesus as our highest treasure, which is our great endeavour in life. That's the meaning of why we exist. And so I've appreciated uh, Tony delving into Jeremiah 17 on New Year's Day. It seems like a long time ago, but it wasn't, two weeks. Um, He brought um, into sharp focus what matters most in life. And then last week, uh, Michael um, led us on the start of our new series, uh, True Worship in Community, preaching out of those pivotal words from the beginning of Romans chapter 12. And today, we're going to take the next step, wading further into Romans 12, um, to discover more of God's heart for his church and to consider the gifts that God's given, that each one of us can use them to serve him in the body of Christ. So let's pray together as we begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you that you've got things to say about the structure and framework of your church. I thank you that we're not just saved into some sort of club, but you save us into your body. And Father, I pray that you come by your Spirit's power today to open our ears and give us soft hearts that we might receive what you have for us particularly today, uh, that we might be able to enjoy your gift of salvation more and outwork it in the life of the church, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. When my family first landed here at City Reach Baptist Church um, back in February 2019, um, I remember sitting up the back there somewhere on a very hot day And looking around, the worship team was amazing. Um, The preaching was great. I heard all these stories about all these groups happening and ministries all over the place. There was counselling. There was pastors all over the place. It was just a thriving community. So it seemed from a newcomer just stepping in. And, um, you know, a real hive of busy bees. Um, We'd come from a... um, a smaller church in Canberra where we'd been for about um, nearly 20 years, um, 80 to 100 people, and uh, sitting there and absorbing everything about the, this community, it was kind of like, wow, is it, are we just going to sit here every week? And it just seems like all the positions are filled. 
and what can we possibly add to what they've already got? And like, maybe this is just a, a quiet season for us where we just sit and relax and soak it all in. Um, back in a, a small church, I don't know if you've ever been in a small church, one of the blessings and curses of a small church is um, there's a great sense of ownership and accountability and need to serve. I mean, if you don't serve, the church dies. Nothing happens if you don't serve. Um, if you don't turn up to a meeting, um, people notice. All right. Whereas we, we can we can miss church for a week or two. We can miss a meeting here and there. And you know, most people aren't going to notice, or they're not going to be, um, you know, that rude to actually ask us where we were. So it's a lot easier to sort of sit back and just coast in a big church than it is in a small church. Um, so there you go. But fast forward um, four and a half years, and uh, well, four years actually. Um, fast, fast forward four years, and the landscape of this church is very different indeed. Uh, today we have just two uh, full-time pastors, Pastor Vincent as the Chinese congregation pastor primarily, and Pastor Graham as the interim senior pastor. Now in many ways the workload hasn't changed, the harvest is still plentiful and the needs are great. But the workers are few, or at very least, fewer. And so I reckon it's timely that we look at this passage today and remember God's heart for his church. Because we're not just parts of the body. Each of us are body parts, members individually, with a critical role to play. So God has saved no one to be just a pew warmer, just someone who goes to church on a Sunday and goes home. Every single one of us has been given gifts by God to be used for the benefit of one another and for his glory. So that's what we're going to look at a bit today. Well, Paul has spent the first 11 chapters of Romans constructing the framework of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Michael talked about this last week. He's, he's built it all up, he's constructed it, um, and we see that he's described our perilous position as wretched sinners, alienated from a holy God, who have now inconceivably been brought near to God by the precious blood of Jesus, which was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. So he's, he's shown this landscape, this amazing landscape in the first 11 book of Romans. We've been brought near to God. And he's completed his discourse at the end of chapter 11 in high worship, which is where all good theology must lead. He writes this. He says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So he's just lost in worship of this magnificent God who has forged a way back for us from death to life. It's, it's an astounding thing. Chapter 12 then is all about the irresistible consequences of so great a salvation. Or as 20th century Christian philosopher Francis Schaeffer asked the question, how should we then live? It's an excellent question. In the light of all that God has done for us, how should we then live? 
So let's turn to Romans 12, and I want to start by just returning to the first two verses we looked at last week, which provide the foundation of what follows in the rest of the chapter. So here's Paul, he's speaking his very best Italian, because he's writing to the Romans, and he says, I appeal to you, therefore, therefore on the basis of everything I've talked about so far, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Or, as the New King James puts it, presenting your bodies as a living sacrifice is your reasonable service. Considering all that God has done for you, it is reasonable. It is fitting to devote your life to him. That's the reasonable, logical, responsible and appropriate way to live given what we've been set free from. And if you don't see how it's reasonable and the only thing we can possibly do, then you haven't understood what God has truly done to set you free. So don't, don't ever live the Christian life as a, a drudgery of, I have to do this to please God, I have to do this, and it's hard work, but I'll, I'll just do this, and it's just... a a boring drudgery. You need to go back to the beginning and see where you've come from, what God has done for you, and that should overflow into works of service and gratitude, things that you can't help but do. It's like if you're at the footy or something and and your footy team um, kicks a goal after the siren to win. It's not like, oh, I suppose now I better get up and clap. It's like you can't help it. You've just witnessed something incredible and you can't help but spontaneously get up and applaud. Or if you've just seen a a magnificent concert or something like that uh, and um, someone's just given an an amazing high point crescendo or something, you're just overwhelmed with emotion and you stand and applaud and give a standing ovation. It's, It's a spontaneous thing. And our Christian life should be a spontaneous thing. And to do that, we need to remember what God has done for us. It is reasonable, it is logical, it is responsible, it is appropriate to um, offer our bodies a living sacrifice to God based on what he's done for us. So Paul goes on, he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And I'm very grateful to Michael for unpacking that for us last week. So building on this foundation, Paul goes on, verse 3. He says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So, Firstly, Paul is writing to the church as one gifted and called by God. He's talking about the grace given to me. It's on this basis that I speak. And he's gifted and called not because of the great things that he's done or because of the great guy that he is. He's gifted and called by God because of unmerited favour and undeserved grace. He knows that Everything he is, he is by the grace of God. And he knows he's the least of the apostles, the least of the saints, and the chief of sinners. 
and that any good he brings to the table is exclusively because of the grace that God has given to him. We bring nothing to the table but our sin. I remember having a chat with a lady back in the church we were in in Canberra, and um, I think I was quoting from one of the Puritans, Horatio, Horatius Bonar, I think it was, where he said that we bring nothing to the table but our sin. We bring nothing to God but our sin. And she was offended by that and um, couldn't believe that I'd say that. And, and I get that. Like, I can understand her perspective. She was saying, but, you know, we're made in the image of God and we have all these gifts and everything. And, like, well, that's true. But apart from what God has given us, we have absolutely nothing to bring to God. It's like the, the hymn said, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Um, we bring nothing but our sin. So everything is unmerited and undeserved. Everything is grace and mercy that we receive from God. And so that understanding lands Paul in a place of deep humility and hence gives him the privilege of speaking instructively to God's people. Secondly, it's on the basis of this grace alone that Paul appeals not just to the leaders of the church, not just to the men in the church, but to everyone among them, he says. Everyone among you. That's who he's speaking to. Absolutely everyone among them. And therefore, inevitably, Paul is speaking to everyone among us. doesn't matter our age or circumstance. He's speaking directly to us. So buckle up because this applies to us. So Paul is telling us not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought, but to think with sober judgment. Tim Keller um, writes this. He said, despite all the warnings our culture gives about the danger of low self-esteem, the real danger is self-centeredness and egocentricity. We are all prone to exaggerate our own wisdom, competence, sincerity and power. Paul shows us that we must always be on the lookout for this danger. We need to accept what we are not, what we cannot do, which opens us up to being able to rely on others. And that's a really important thing to remember. We need to accept what we are not, what we cannot do, which opens us up to being able to rely on others. We need to see our lack so we can find it in others. Ultimately, we need to see our eternal lack so we can find it in our Saviour. If we, we forget that we have a lack apart from Christ, we won't desire him and treasure him as we ought. So many of the world's problems stem from people with inflated and distorted views of their own importance and abilities. You just have to look at social media or... Um, mainstream pop culture or read a bit of politics and you can see that that's often an issue and just maybe so many of our problems also stem from having inflated and distorted views of our own importance and abilities. We naturally tend to look out for our own interests ahead of others. We give ourselves the benefit of the doubt rather than others. We get upset when life doesn't revolve around us. So Paul contrasts this by imploring us to think 
with sober judgment. We need to think soberly and carefully about ourselves. To be sober means to be honest and accurate and in touch with reality. We need to know the truth about ourselves. Now, that can impact us in a couple of ways. Firstly, sometimes our sober judgment of ourselves will cause us to realise that perhaps we're just not gifted in certain ways that we'd like to be, and we need to humble ourselves and seek counsel from others and pursue what else God has for us. Maybe um, you fancy yourself as, I don't know, a singer or someone who would be a great children's teacher or someone in leadership, but maybe you've stepped into that and you've tried it out, but after a while it's like, you know, maybe I'm not really called to this. Maybe, you know, if we think soberly and look at the fruit and maybe speak to others that we can trust, maybe it's not what God's called us to. We might notice this especially as we get older. Um, I had a birthday in the last couple of weeks. Who has already had a birthday this calendar year? Look at that. Now that's a decent number. Happy birthday to all the early January people. Um, This is good. Um, So as you have a birthday, you realise you get older, of course. And uh, now in our worship team in Canberra, um, we were all pretty much the same age, a few younger ones, but pretty much the same age, pretty old. But um, here, I look around at the worship team, and most weeks, it's like I'm the oldest person on the stage. And, and there's a tendency to think, look, I believe I have a gift, and, and that's why I'm in this position, and, and that's why I'm going to do it for the rest of my life. But I need to think soberly about God's call on my life as I get older. And God's not always going to want me to do the same stuff today. Uh, I mean, the same stuff in you know, years' time compared to what I'm doing today or to what I've already done. There, there comes a time when um, there are others younger around about us that need to have their chance to serve the sun uh, in the sun. And um, it's time for us to step aside, which can be really difficult because it affects our identity, um, our sense of self-worth, who we are, all that sort of stuff. So it can be tricky and we need a lot of God's grace to determine when he's asking us to just step aside. It's a great challenge. So thinking soberly um, can sometimes cause us to think whether we shouldn't be doing something that we have been doing. Secondly, on the flip side, thinking soberly can cause us to see the need to step up and fill a void in the body of Christ. It could be that we've been doing a Moses at the burning bush. Absolutely classic account, Moses at the burning bush. God puts a call upon his life, pretty simple call to leave, lead you know, Israel out of Egypt. Um, and Moses goes on and on for the next half a chapter or more, giving every reason under the sun why he can't possibly do it. He excuses himself time and again. Gideon did the same thing when God called him in uh, Judges 6, I think it is. Um, I'm the least of the clans, and the least of the tribes. You know, pick someone else. Um, He was afraid, and Moses was afraid, and 
The answer that God gave to each of them and the answer that God gives to us is that he will be with us. That's his answer. His presence will abide with us. Whatever God calls you to, God will equip you with the things you need to carry it out. He's not going to call you to something and then abandon you. His presence will go with you and he'll give you the gifts and the talents that you need to be able to carry it out. So the issue for Moses and for Gideon and for you and I is to recognise God's appointment on our lives and to remember that God anoints what he appoints. If he calls, he equips. He calls us to faithfulness and confidence in his ability and in his strength, not in ours. Sometimes we need to realise that God has gifted us in a certain area, but we haven't acted upon it. It might be due to laziness or apathy. You know, sometimes it can be, there's a big cost in stepping up and saying, hey, I'll do it. You know, it means maybe nightly meetings or more time in prayer or preparation or, you know, all sorts of stuff that you've got to do. There's a real cost involved. And so sometimes laziness and apathy can stop us from using our gifts. Sometimes it could be due to fear of commitment, just not wanting to be locked in and not wanting to be perhaps under someone else's authority and having accountability. Or it could be fear of failure. We just, you know, we think we've got a gift, but we're afraid of putting it out there because what if I'm really not that good or what if I fail? And so our fear holds us back and we don't use what God's given us. But if God has given us a gift, we need to exercise it and seek God for opportunities to do it. Sober thinking will allow us to do that. Now just before um, we move on, there's one tricky little phrase at the end of verse 3 which has created a bit of consternation amongst commentators and theologians Paul calls us to think with sober judgment, and then he adds, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now, one interpretation of this phrase equates measure of faith with amount of faith. So some have more faith than others, and this is going to affect our opinion of ourselves. But one thing I found helpful was another thing that Tim Keller wrote. He suggests Paul is saying that we've been given our saving faith in Christ crucified, and that is how we are to measure ourselves. He writes this. He says, The gospel prevents us thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. We are sinners, and all our efforts earn only judgment, and we are saved entirely by another's kindness. And the gospel prevents us thinking in more lowly ways than we ought. We are saved sinners, And we are loved and valued in the gaze of the only one whose opinion ultimately matters. So these are two important things that we need to hold together every day of our Christian life. We need to remember that we are filthy wretches heading for eternal punishment apart from Christ. But then we need to remember that we are no longer apart from Christ. We are in Christ. He has saved us to the uttermost and we are deeply loved. But we dare not forget where we've come from, otherwise we can become conceited and arrogant and think somehow that we deserve this salvation 
remembering where we've come from reminds us we don't deserve any of this. It is all unmerited. It's because of the merit of another who died. It's still not here. On the cross. On the cross for us. I have to go looking for it. Must be behind there, I reckon. So we need to remember um, the two things and hold them in balance. If we, yeah, it's, it's really important. We, we could, if we just remember the wretches that we were, we can tend to become legalistic and religious and all of that, and it's a dark place. If we just live over here and forget where we come from, we become arrogant, and it can even lead to being very liberal in terms of sin and the way we live our lives. So we need both held together. Um, so our sober judgment of ourselves should begin with a true appreciation of who we are in Christ in the light of the life-changing truths of the gospel. So back to our passage. Paul instructed us to think with sober judgment from a place of humility in the shadow of the cross. And then he goes on to verse 4. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes, now you'd expect him to say in his contribution, but he doesn't, he says in generosity, and the next two are similar. <clears throat> so he's, he's now directing us to our heart. He doesn't want us to just give a contribution. He wants us to give it in generosity, the one who leads with zeal. He wants there to be a passion in the way that you lead so that others will capture your passion and be warmed to the way that you're leading. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Okay, remember God loves a cheerful giver, not just a giver. He doesn't care about just what we do, but how we do it. Somewhere else, Paul talks about us offering hospitality, and then he says, without grumbling. It's like, it's hard enough to do hospitality sometimes without the, and don't grumble bit. But God cares about our hearts. That's what the Sermon on the Mount was all about. It was going beyond the, the letter of the law to the heart of the law. That's a, just a side point, but it's an important little thing that I noticed there. I love picture allegories in the Bible. It just helps to understand a truth a whole lot better when there's a picture. So um, in this case, Paul's talking about the church, but he's using the allegory of the human body to make his point. As Christ's church, we are one body. Now that sounds pretty simple, but it's really quite profound. It's very humbling, and it gives us confidence in God's plan for his church. It's humbling because there is only one body of Christ. One church, one faith, one baptism, one name by which we must be saved, one heaven, and there are not different rooms in heaven for all the different denominations and doctrinal distinctives. There is one heaven, one body of Christ, one bride, one Lord. And that's incredibly humbling and it's incredibly, it gives me a lot of hope. We can get discouraged when we look around the world at the huge diversity of Christian denominations. 
where we see such a discrepancy of theological hills to die on which have created so much fracturing and schism within the church. There was, I don't know if you've read much Christian history. You should, because without knowing history, we're destined to repeat the failings of our past. But there was the great schism of 1054, the classic 1054 schism, when the Eastern Church broke away from the Western Church that created all the Orthodox churches of the East and the Roman Catholic Church solidified as the Western Church. And then if you go on to read about the Reformation, which was an incredible move of God, a very much needed move of God, but you read through the history of those subsequent decades and there was just fracturing and schisms. It was just... it just ended up in a diverse bit of a mess and people grabbed key doctrinal points which had good biblical justification and, and all of that, but it, it sent the church in different ways and it just was sad. And that's our great challenge. That's our great challenge here, but it's our great challenge um, to consider the fact that we are one church here, but one church globally, and how do, we, how do we deal with that? How do we view the church? It's so often to, it's easy to sort of pick and choose, oh, they're, they're probably not part of the real church, and, but we are, we've got the truth, you know, but uh, it's not that simple. I've been in a, a myriad of churches in my life, and they've held a whole lot of varying views and stuff, and I'm sure not one of them is all right, and I'm absolutely convinced I'm not 100% correct in all of my theological views, absolutely guaranteed. Now where are we? Where are we? Paul reminds us there is one body, one bride, one church. I reckon we can learn much by applying the advice often attributed to St. Augustine, but more probably penned by an otherwise undistinguished German Lutheran theologian of the early 17th century, Rupertus Meldinius classic rupee, regarding doctrinal, dis- doctrinal distinctives. He wrote, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. Now, Philip Schaff, who was distinguished as the preeminent historian of the church in the 18th century, he called this saying the watchword of Christian peacemakers, unity in the absolute essentials of our faith. Liberty extended to interpretation of non-essential matters that still have a biblical framework that don't impact our salvation. And in all things, charity, because if we have not love, we are nothing. So the church is one body, but made up of many members. That's you and me and all who are found in Christ. And Paul tells us that as members, we don't all have the same function. We have different God-given gifts, which God has intentionally and specifically given to each one of us as he has determined in his wisdom, goodness, and grace. It's easy for us to look at other people and think, why can't I have their gifts? You know, they're cool. Why can't I have those gifts? And God's given you a different gift. We need to remember who's given you the gift. God is a good giver. He knows you intimately. He's designed you for a purpose to serve him. 
and it's to bring you fulfillment in your life. If you try and serve outside of what has created you to be, you're always going to struggle and, and strive and not find the joy that you're after. We need to seek God for who has created us to be, the gifts that he's given us, and seek to serve in that capacity. Why has God done it this way? It's so that we, though many, might realise we are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. We are dependent on one another. We need each other. We are incomplete without each other. The members of the body of Christ around about us are essential for our growth in the Christian life. Each one of us that God has appointed here is essential for our growth in the Christian life. That's how God created it to be. Now, I just want to jump across to 1 Corinthians 12 here, which is the other classic section of Scripture where Paul talks about the body, the body of Christ, and talks about the body parts because it's just such an eloquent way of describing it all. So rather than me waffle on further, I just want to read what Paul has to say there. So 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptised into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, Pentecostals or Lutherans or Methodists or Calvinists or Uniting Church people, at least some of them, (laughs) Baptists and Salvation Army and Presbyterians, And we were all made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honourable, we bestow the greater honour. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honour to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honoured, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. That's how Paul winds up what he's saying. That's the summary. You are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And so, in closing, the passage before us today is a call to humility. It's a call to think soberly of ourselves, not too highly, 
so that we're self-centred and puffed up with pride, which distorts our vision, but not too lowly. We need to remember who we are in Christ because of the infinite difference that the gospel has made to us. This passage today reminds us that we are called to be one church, one bride, one body. We're called to unity, but it's a unity in diversity, and that diversity needs to be held together with love, because if we lose love, we lose everything. This passage today reminds that we are members individually created with a unique and essential purpose. Without each one of us filling our God-ordained roles and using our God-given gifts and abilities, the church is the poorer and God is not exalted as he should be. And so at the beginning of this new year, think with sober judgment about yourself. Are you thinking too highly of yourself? Are you thinking too lowly of yourself? Has God given you gifts that you're not exercising and using to build up the body of Christ? Because our church needs you. Our church needs every one of you. Outworking your gifts to the glory of God, for the benefit of the body, and for your increasing joy in Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you that you didn't just add us to a club, but you added us to the body of Christ, of which Christ is the head. And Father, thank you for the beautiful picture that you, you have in Scripture of the way we should all work together. But Father, we can't do it without your help, without your grace, without your Holy Spirit prompting us. Father, we need to remember who we are in Christ and we need to be bold enough to seek you and to ask how we can serve you, our great king, our redeemer, our saviour, considering all you've done, allowing our body to be a living sacrifice for the king of kings and lord of lords. Father, would you come to each one of us and speak to our hearts and lives where we need to hear so that we might bring change for your glory and for our great joy in Christ this year, I pray. And now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen.